Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Callum. Um, good morning, church. It's great to be joining you to share again for our series in Colossians. But this morning as we start, I want to start with a question. Have you ever had an awkward moment of, or an embarrassing moment of mistaken identity? I know I have mistaken random strangers in the middle of Spain for my dad before on a holiday, but I want to, or maybe if you've heard it said, maybe have you ever been told you have a lookalike? Anyone? No one? Well, I cast my mind through the congregation of Grace Fellowship, and for your eyes only, I'm praising the Lord right now that this is up here because obviously this bit was going to flop. And I have found us a few lookalikes. So, first up, our very own Reuben Smith. Stick it up, Warren. Reuben Smith, a fine young chap. And if you've seen the latest Top Gun Maverick movie, you'll know the main protagonist is played by a guy called Miles Teller, or as I like to call him, Reuben, in 15 years. <laughs> right? Or, if, that, if, if you don't agree with that one, what about our very own Alan McDowell? Stick him up. There's Alan. And none other than TV's Harry Hill. <laughs> right? <laughs> or, uh, we've seen plenty of them this morning. What about our very own Stan Kelly, as he gives me daggers? Captain America himself. What about him? And none other than Chris Evans, the resemblance is uncanny, right? And this is my favorite. This is one that, that me and Paul have a bit of a running joke with, because what about our very own Pastor Ali? And photo provided by Ellen Brown, by the way, just to say. Not by our own Pastor Ali Brown, and of course, Mr. Burns. So, why am I talking about lookalikes? Is it just to poke fun of people at church? Yes, it pretty much, it pretty much is. Um, well, it, and it, but it kind of leads into another story. And again, not a, not a Bible story, but another story that kind of unpacks what we're talking about today. See, in 2014, um, Arsenal were playing Chelsea in the Premier League, and I support neither of these teams, and so this match should have been of no consequence to me. It shouldn't have mattered at all. Um, but there was something that happened in that game that every football fan in the country was fascinated by on match of the day that night and it wasn't that Chelsea beat Arsenal 6-0 it was in fact an incident that happened 17 minutes into the game as Chelsea were on the attack they got into the box and a man a Chelsea man managed to swing a ball in towards the back post curling into the back net back back post into the corner and it would have been a wonderful goal if not for Alex Oxley-Chamberlain on the line throwing his hand out and saving it now it would have been a great save if he was the goalkeeper but he wasn't the goalkeeper. And so Andre Mariner, the referee, rightly awarded a penalty and he pulled out a red card to give to the Arsenal man. But in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of all the complaining and the fans going crazy, the ref got a bit confused and he turned to Kieran Gibbs, the left back, who'd done nothing wrong, showed him the red card and said, away you go. Ensues outroar and, uh, and protests from players and angry fans, but the referee insisted that Kieran Gibbs had to go off. And as I said, Chelsea went on to 6-0, but no one was talking about the scoreline that night. They were talking about the referee and the howler that he had made in sending off the wrong man. He had disqualified the wrong guy. And this story at Stamford Bridge that day in a sense, mirrors a bit of what Paul wants to get to the heart of for these Christ followers in Colossa in this passage that we're looking at. For these Christians, there was a very real and serious threat of a wrongful disqualification surrounding them. 
There were those around them who were wrongly trying to remove them or exclude them or deny them. There were those who were saying they weren't in the people of God because they didn't do it the way we did it. They don't do it the right way. They're totally not like all these different things. And as we journey through this passage this morning, I hope that we'll see these two things that are on the screen right now. Paul gives a plea and it comes in two parts. The first, don't be disqualified. And the second, don't become disconnected. And again, the overarching story of this passage, as it has been through all of Colossians, is this idea that Jesus is all that you have, he's all that you need, and he is over everything. And my prayer for us this morning is that as we uh, listen and digest these words and these instructions of Paul, that the Holy Spirit would illuminate and identify areas in our lives where we need to hear the truth above the noise where we need to repent and and fall back in behind the Lordship of Christ and that we would be reinvigorated with a deep love for him and a deep love for each other, his body, the church. And so we'll dive into the first part of Paul's plea, do not be disqualified. Paul is obviously aware of a threat that's been facing this forming church in Colossae, a threat threat that rings similar tones to that of what he talks about in Galatians. Um, This church was surrounded by people, some Jews or maybe even Roman mystics or philosophers who were trying to lead them astray, uh, trying to undermine and exclude them and deter them from believing that they had been welcomed chosen and invited into the people of God. Like Karen talked us through last week, this whole idea of received and not achieved, that was so foreign to them, that was not the case. And we see in verse 16, Paul writes, uh, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. This church was surrounded by people that telling them that salvation through, the faith, through faith in the saving work of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was not enough. They were surrounded by naysayers to the idea that their following Jesus and faith in him for salvation was enough to receive adoption into the people of God. They were preaching the opposite of what Karen had sort of spoken on last week, this idea of receiving God's grace, receiving his love, receiving adoption as a gift freely given and not achieved by us. And these voices appeared in different ways. In verse 16, Paul is almost speaking of like spiritual judges who are sort of looking to exclude these Christians from from the people of God. To them, what they drank and what they ate, the Jewish holidays they did or they didn't celebrate, that all the practical outworkings of their faith seemed to go against the Jewish customs that had preceded Christ. And so as a result, these people could never have been welcomed into the family of God. They were outsiders. And according to these teachers, God was not someone in the business of welcoming outsiders. He would, he had, God had his chosen people, Israel. God had his chosen race. God, not these pagan Gentiles. And how does Paul respond to these people? He is defiant. He is defiant in his plea to the church to take no heed of their words. The word therefore that starts that off is really important because it harks back to what Paul has already said. And in verse 14, Paul says, um, he talks about it and he speaks of the work of Christ canceling the record of debt that stood against us with the law and its legal demands. And then similarly, similarly in verse 18, Paul writes, uh, let no one disqualify you, insisting on ascetism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Here, instead of judges, 
These people are kind of like referees, as you see on the screen there. According to them, these Christians aren't playing the game by the rules. They aren't ticking the right boxes. They don't deprive themselves enough of things like food or things like worldly comforts. Their spirituality looks totally different. They aren't as holy or spiritually enlightened or mature as the, because they don't worship angels and they don't have these visions that are brought on from starving themselves. And they don't have the self-proclaimed righteousness that the others seem to show. Again, Paul's response to these critics and umpires seeking to disqualify the church in Colossae is a total rejection of what they were saying. And regarding their angel worship, that's a weird phrase. Um, There's a lot of speculation about what that meant. Um, Like, did they pray to angels? Did they literally worship angels and sing to them or have liturgy for them? Or maybe was it more subtle? To steal uh, one of Pastor Ali's uh, images or, or expressions that he's used before, he's told a story about Maddie the dog and losing her ball, and Ali tries to point at the dog and point at the ball and say, "There's your ball, there's your ball." And Maddie's so fixated on Ali's finger, she totally misses the ball. <laughs> she won't look at the ball; it doesn't go to the ball. Anyone got a dog and can relate to that? Probably. I wonder if these naysayers had been so fixated on the angels that gave them visions or, or these things that they'd seen or, or these spiritual experiences that actually their worship had moved away from God and was actually now focused and totally missing him. In essence, were they worshiping angels? Were they worshiping visions? Were they worshiping their practices rather than worshiping God? Regardless of what the Jewish custom of spirituality looked like, Paul's prayer and command to the church in Colossae was to reject their rejection, to refuse to be dismayed or disqualified from the family that Christ had purchased them into. And that begs the question for these Christians, what are they to do with the law? And it begs the question for us today, it begs the question for me today, what are we to do with the law? If Jesus has saved us, if he has brought us out from under condemnation and judgment, but rather now we're in right standing and freedom and righteousness, and we've sang about it this morning, we're dressed in the righteousness of Jesus before God because of what he's done for us, what do we do with the law? Do we throw it out? Old is gone, new has come. Old Testament sort of fulfilled in Jesus, so sweet, we'll live in the New Testament and keep the fun Sunday school stories for the kids. Is it throwing the baby out with the bathwater? Is that what Paul is doing here? And I don't think so. Why? Well, there's two stories from Jesus' life, for me at least, that I think shed a bit of light. And, and, and who better to learn from than Christ himself? The first is from the Sermon on the Mount, where Matthew 5 describes the story of Jesus teaching through the Old Testament law to the people of Israel. And what does he do with it? Does he throw it out? Is it all pointless now because Jesus is here to save the day and we all get a free hall pass and he's gonna fulfill it so you don't need to worry about it, it's all good. No, Jesus raises the bar on every single thing that he teaches. Murder? No, I say if you hold hatred in your heart, you've murdered, you have sinned against God. Uh, adultery? No, if you look at a man or woman with lustful intent, you've committed sin against God, you've committed adultery in your heart. Or even love your neighbor? No, I say love your enemy. And then he finishes it all with this phrase that it only really struck me at a YT night we had a few weeks ago, but he finishes with this phrase, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And the danger when we hear those words can be that we just feel like, good grief, 
I have no chance. But what is Jesus saying to his disciples here? Yes, he is saying be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. But what's the lesson that he's trying to draw out from this impossible standard? What is the lesson he's trying to pull out? The lesson is that he's trying to speak to the inclination of his disciples' hearts. Rather than be people who build a barrier around sin right here and say, okay, here's sin and we can get this close and we can look at it as long as we don't touch it, as long as we just kind of stand in a line all around it. Don't get on the fence, don't go over the fence, but the fence is here, that's sin, that's okay. Let's not cross over there. Rather than be people like that, he wants us to be people who look at sin and then see God and say, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't even want to look at that. I don't even want to build a fit. I just want to turn and run towards the righteousness and the goodness of God. I want to pursue his goodness. I want to pursue the Father. I want to chase after holiness and perfection. And, no, and because, not because I need to prove myself to God, to prove that I'm perfect, but because I know that, or because they would know that in pursuing their Father, they're pursuing the one who loved them first. In pursuing their father, they're stepping into and running after every perfect calling and perfect purpose that God had for their lives from the beginning of time. And the second story that it makes me think about this sort of, as we unpack what we do with the law, is this, um, the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, this guy who somehow believed he had fulfilled every part of the law that he needed to do, literally says it to Jesus, that's brave. Um, And then in order to follow him, Jesus says, well, sell all your possessions, get rid of all your stuff and follow me. And what's the response of the rich young ruler? Next slide, Warren. He goes away sorrowful. See, to him, Jesus wasn't worth that. A tick box I could follow, and I couldn't even follow, but to this rich young ruler, a tick box I could, I could list off, I could live by that. But you want me to give everything up for you? You want to give me my money, my power, my authority, everything? Jesus, that's, it's not worth it. To him, Jesus wasn't worth it. And in both of these stories, Jesus is focused more on the, on the heart and more on the inclination of his disciples' hearts than any sort of outward-looking piety or righteousness or practices or anything like that. What is the heart of his disciples like? Are they following him? Do they choose him? Is he worth it? Romans 6, 15 to 18 puts it like this. It says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. How's that for a phrase? Have become slaves to righteousness. Paul's desire was not for a free hall pass or no homework. Jesus' desire for his disciples wasn't a rejection of the law. It was that the, the law would enlighten them and show them that their very hearts had to be changed. Their very hearts needed to be freed from a slavery to sin, a slavery to the things of the world freed from slavery to death, that they would become obedient slaves to righteousness. 
And so how is your heart today? As Karen challenged and shared a bit last week, what parts of your soul and your life do you need to expose to the love of God, to the grace of Jesus, so that he may shape you and form you by your Holy Spirit, not to be someone who builds fences around sin, but someone who chases after God's goodness. Paul outlines this transformation in verse 20 of Colossians chapter two. He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. For these Colossians, they needed to be reminded that they were the age to come. Christian, today, here in Grace Fellowship, you are part of that age that is to come. You need to hear that today. Your time isn't coming in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or when you cross the river and get to heaven and then you can serve God and then you can step into all he has for you. Your time and the age to come is now. I read this in a commentary preparing for this morning and I really liked it. It's not gonna come up on the screen, but bear with me. It says, Christ has inaugurated the age to come. The regulations of Judaism were designed for the period when the people of God consisted of one racial, one cultural, one geographical unit, and are simply put out of date now that this people is becoming a worldwide family. They were the shadows that the approaching New Age cast before it. Now that that reality has come, there's no point in clinging to the shadows. The reality belongs to Christ. The church in Colossae needed to be reminded of that truth, to be strengthened in that truth. Do we need that truth today, that reminder, that encouragement, that if our hearts have been turned away from a slavery to sin and to the world, they're now righteous. Our hearts are now slaves to the righteous, holy love of God. And no one, no one can disqualify you from God's family this morning. In our context today, I chatted with a few people about this, including my mum, who's very wise. Um, it can be really hard for me to identify places in my life where I have people saying, you're not in the people of God. It's not really a 2023 Northern Ireland phrase we throw around. So it's hard for me at times to sort of connect in the same way that the church was going through in 60 AD. And as I sat with this, I, I was trying to find a way to bring it home to myself. And I was just, I was waiting on God and God kind of put two things on my heart. First, was if I couldn't see this in my own life, someone trying to disqualify me, is there a chance that at times in my weakest, in my most insecure, in my most prideful places, am I the disqualifier? I don't mean to be heavy and self-deprecating and just for the sake of it, because that's silly, but I also know that the biggest struggle that I can face in reading scripture is that I like to read it for other people. <laughs> I like to go, oh, flip. I know somebody really needs that verse today, Lord. You need to work a miracle in their heart. Flip me. And I just become like that guy puffed up on his own prayers when Jesus speaks of in that parable. And I sat, as I sat with that question. I was just convicted with a real challenge from God. Are there people who I look at? And maybe I don't disqualify from being Christians. That's pretty extreme. But maybe instead I say, they could never be an evangelist. Lol. Or that person is so far from faith and from God, is there even a point in sharing the gospel with them? 
Or that young person at the edge just pushes every button they can and they just wind me up and they don't listen when I try to tell them about Jesus and they don't listen when I'm trying to be, have a heart to heart and they don't listen to anything I try to tell them. So God, what's the point? I'm just giving up. There's no point doing this anymore. And in so, am I playing the role of the false teacher? Am I dictating what I think to God and saying, yeah, I know what you would wanna do, Jesus, but I know better, trust your man on the inside here. If that's what I've done, if that's what I'm doing, now, if that's what I've done, will do in the future, Lord, forgive me for my foolish and small mind and understanding of who you are and who I am not. The second thing I felt God pressing into my heart for this morning was that a lot of time that a lot of the time that disqualifying voice that we hear that tells us we're not measuring up, we're not playing well enough, we're not playing by the rules, we have failed, we are exiled, we're outsiders, we're not in there, we're not good enough, can actually be our own. Jesus, I can't. God, I don't know enough. Lord, I don't have the way with words or the theology degree to share you with someone in a, in a clear way or with my friends or family. Jesus, I'm a failure. How could any of the stuff that we're talking about be for me? How could life be for me? God, my life's a mess. I'm an absolute falling apart. It's ripping at the seams. I can't keep anything together. It's all falling apart. And so for you and for me sitting here today, do we recognize a need for that same challenge in our lives? Do we have a fresh understanding an outpouring of God's grace and spirit in our lives to be reminded of who we are in Christ. Do we think we need some greater set of rules or regulations so we can try to stand out and earn that love that our hearts crave? Or do we realize that if we have died with Christ, we no longer find ourselves fumbling around in the dark, trying to get God's attention, looking for the light switch, but rather we are here and now living in the age that is to come in this worldwide family of God, that our place is secure and steadfast within this family, within the hands of God. So don't be disqualified, the first part of the plea. Sandwiched in the middle of a bunch of those verses we looked at there is verse 19, and it's kind of the second part of Paul's play, so I'm gonna read from 18 and then get to 19, but it says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on ascetism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Paul's second plea hidden away in these verses is don't become disconnected. Don't become disjointed. His prayer is for a unity between all of the believers in this church with the wider church body, which in turn connects these believers to the head that is Jesus. Paul seems to address the people attacking the church saying, you're not good enough. You're not right saying that they're not holy enough. They don't have these expressions enough or that these big expressions and big holy things where they see angels and visions and that disqualifies them. And the irony of that is that in doing so, they show how disconnected that they are from the people of God. I thought about this. Ever wanted to have a test where you could see if you were a Christian, like you have a scanner and you just beep and you have like a salvation guarantee? <laughs> would sell well at a Christian car boot sale. Um, well, in Paul's eyes, the truest test of a person's salvation and membership of God's people wasn't in their observation of a diet 
or wasn't to do with laws or festivals or even the stories of supernatural, amazing experiences that I'd had with these angels and whatnot. No, for Paul, the test was to see whether one belonged to Christ alive with his life, whether one had fully surrendered lordship of all that they do and all that they are over to Jesus. Was everything they did for him? Was there nothing off limits? I wonder are the people in your life who you recognize in that kind of faith in. Karen shared about her auntie last week. Um, or those of us in the Jesus, Sex and Gender course, we, there's folks who get interviewed in that and I kind of look at them and I go, wow, they have surrendered everything over like Jackie Hill Perry or Greg Coles or people like that. Or maybe even folks like these. I embarrassed them earlier. Time to redeem them here. <laughs> folks like these, like, like, like Ali and Ian and Stephen or other mission partners like Ali Dini or and Adik and Anya or Vio and Estera or maybe just folks who you see on Sunday or on a Monday or in home group or people who you just see Jesus as Lord of their life and you just see the way they live. You, you're just inspired by who they are within our fellowship or within a wider. We the church receive our life from Christ himself. As Paul writes on the next slide there where it says, uh, he talks about all that. It says, from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. And again, in prepping for this morning, I heard another version or a commentary say, maybe more as God wants it to grow. As a member of the body of Christ, I need you and you need me and we need each other, not because we're all so great and we are great. Shout out to Warren at the back, sorting out all the tech stuff, he's great. but because that is part of the beauty and the mystery of how God has designed and formed us to grow together. Paul's warning for the church was that these private visions that others were demanding actually isolated the individual. The dietary laws of the Jewish nation from the world around them isolated them from nations and tribes around them. And the design and plan for his church God had planned that all would belong together in mutual interdependence and ultimate dependence on Jesus. And, and maybe you ask them, where do you see this today or where do I see this in my life? And for me, I see this living proof in my life from some experiences I've had. Like I see it in last week, 40 young people having a minute's silence for Ukraine. Brothers and sisters sit, sitting, listening, waiting on God, for their brothers and sisters in Ukraine and then being led by Dasha as she prayed in her native tongue at the front of youth for for the war going on there. Profound, beautiful interdependence of the people of God. Or I see it in small groups journeying through some of society's biggest questions in midweek small groups, longing to be people who love God and love others well. Iron sharpening iron. Strong, honest, vulnerable interdependence of the people of God or I see it in the team setting up this morning or a tech at the back or serving coffee or leading worship or on the door or running kids church or running crash, committed, loving, dedicated interdependence of the people of God. Or really in my life at the minute in this season that Paul prayed about at the start, it's through a letter through the mailbox or a text on the phone, checking in, are you okay? Encouraging you to keep going, encouraging you to keep going to God and just saying that they'll be there for you. Or really practically, maybe it's as my mum received a free nail appointment. 
from a sister in Christ because that's just what she felt she could do in her own subtle, supportive, sacrificial way. Compassionate, giving, sacrificial interdependence of the people of God. I read an article this week um, chatting about Diedrich Bonhoeffer's life together and it says, in its essence, it's come up on the screen there. In its essence, Christian community means that we belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. Christian brother and sisterhood is not an ideal which we must realize or work towards or eventually get. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. Paul's urge for the church in Colossae, much like Jesus's for the church when he was on earth, was to never allow themselves to become disconnected from each other or from the head. Part of the mystery of faith is that they were walking in, that they were walking in was that God was pleased to teach and train and grow, not those at the front of the queue or those who can answer the questions first and put their hands up or those who were the best and were able to run ahead, but all of the whole body together. Through our unity and our supernatural love that Ali spoke of at the start of this series whenever a few weeks ago when we started Colossians, and through the Holy Spirit at work in and through the collective body. That was how God wanted to sanctify his people. That's the context within which God wants us to grow to be more like Jesus. And so Paul's plea to the church comes back to the overall message of Colossians, Jesus over everything. Jesus is all they had, but he's also all that they needed. In Jesus, they'd receive the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus, they'd receive freedom from the slavery of the world and the empty piety that false teaching and false teachers around them were calling them into. In Jesus, they'd receive a family and a body within which to grow and live and pursue the purposes of God and the glory of God. No rules or regulations could buy this freedom. Only a, gentle, a surrender to the gentle, powerful, gracious, merciful, and strong lordship of Jesus. And so is Christ Lord of your life today? Paul, we've sang so much about, thank you for leading us in worship. Is Christ Lord of your life today? Is he all that you need today? Or is it a bit more money? Or is it that promotion? Or is it that relationship? Or is it that person's approval? Or is it that stuff? Is Jesus all that you need today? And is he worth it? Paul's prayer and his urge for the church in Colossae was twofold. Let no one disqualify them wrongly. They were to know their new identity and place in this new age of God's people. Do you know that you've been offered a place secured in God's people this morning? The blood of Jesus has signed your adoption papers and all you have to do this morning is accept that invitation if you haven't already. Accept that it's not about you, it's not about what you've done, it's not about what you can do, it's not about what you can bring to the family like a um, Disney movie or whatever. Accept that it's not about you and what you can bring to God, it's totally about what he has done and what he offers you. The fullness of his grace and mercy, life overflowing. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. This morning, is that you? Do you need to hear that? You're a child of God. 
And then the second part was, it's on the screen there, don't become disjointed or disconnected from the body and the head of Christ. And final sort of image that I'm gonna use this morning uh, is one from anyone, I maybe shouldn't ask this question because you don't want to out yourself, um, but uh, I was watching Jeremy Clarkson's Farm, uh, the new series. I know there's some people booing already. I know, I know, shame on me, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, and the great theological scholar, Marlene, that the, the Jeremy Clarkson is, um, something really stood out to me from one of the episodes, okay? Please don't go to Jeremy Clarkson for theology. I'm looking at like young people in the room as well. That's not what your youth pastor's saying, please hear me. Um, but in it, there was this national hedge fence building competition, don't know what it's called, but it was this one where you build hedges or build fences out of hedges that are naturally there, okay? And you sort of just manipulate them and you bend them and you make them look these beautiful hedges like this. And this was a national championship and it was being held in Jeremy's field. And when they finished the competition, Jeremy's walking around the hedges and he's walking around all these things that the guys have done and he's inspecting the work and he's got an expert with him and he's astounded at what they've done. And Warren, if you click it one more on, yeah, he's astounded and he gets to the bottom of each of the hedges and he goes, I can't believe that. That looks like it's about to snap. And the expert says, yeah, it's incredible. They're aiming for about an 80% cut through the root of the tree. And I was like, Whoa, and Jeremy Carson said, 80%, that's ridiculous. It looks like it's gonna snap, that will keep it alive. And the expert just simply said, yep, just as long as it's connected to the roots and by the trunk, it'll be okay. Maybe today you feel like you're hanging on by a thread. (laughs) Maybe today you feel, as Paul said, that abiding in Jesus, I can only do that badly. Maybe today you feel like 20% of who you want to be. Maybe you're at a place where if you could put numbers on your faith, which you can't do, so it falls apart, can I hear? But you'd say you're at like 20% of your max faith. Maybe this morning you feel that pressure and that pushing from life as these hedges feel as they're manipulated and bent down and things are going on in life that are just pulling you apart and you feel like you're hanging by that string and you've got so little to give to God that what's the point? Maybe you think it'd just be easier if you just let go. If you just let that 20% go and just fail. Give it up, walked away, leave it all behind. Paul's prayer for you this morning is the body of Christ is to hold on. Let no one disqualify you. Let nothing stop you from pursuing the glory of God. Find that even when you feel you have no strength at all to hold on to Jesus, there's a supernatural strength and a grace that is given to those who just reach out and cry out, help. God, help. And this isn't to say that your 20% rapidly becomes 100% or you you become 100% of who you wanna be. But Jesus asks that if you feel like 20% of a person, give all of that 20% to him. Those hedges were on the brink of snapping and death. All they needed was a connection to the roots, even 20%. As Christ calls us to do in this, all that Christ calls us to do in this life is to abide in him. We spent a week, literally Paul talked about it, we spent a week focused on that in prayer recently. This week, do you need to abide in him this morning do you need to hear abide in me put away the facade take off the mask just be real abide with me 
do you need to be reminded that God is a God who works through those on the margins, who works through those who feel weak, who feel pathetic, who feel worthless, who feel useless. He uses the weak to lead the strong and he makes his strength perfect in their weakness. Ultimately, do you need to hear this morning as Paul is trying to urge the church with all these influences and weight and pressure pushing down on them, Jesus is all that you have. And in Jesus, there's so much. There is the body of Christ. There is all of, there's so much in Jesus. But he's all that you have and he's all that you need and he's over everything. I'm gonna ask Paul to come up and get ready to leave worship. Um, Again, as we respond, And if that is you this morning and you're just, you feel that 20%, you feel just weak and that you can't hold on and, or or maybe there's been stuff in your past in your faith that that people have said to you or tried to disqualify you or you feel like you've had that weight from those who claim to be in the body of Christ, who claim to be from God. Can I encourage you to do something with that this morning, to leave it, to do business with the Father, to, to abide in him as we worship? And to remember, Jesus is all we have. He's all we need. And he is over everything, over every situation, every circumstance, every sickness, over everything. 